as we come this evening to the final words of Job, although he's going to speak again in chapter 42, but thus ends the monologues and the soliloquies, and we might even say the sermons of Job tonight as we look all the way through chapter 31 together, but let me just read chapter 29 to get us going, and and then we'll begin after I pray. So here now as God speaks to you through his word. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, And the rock poured out for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. The aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sting for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand, my roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we ask that even this word tonight would comfort those that are mourning, would steady those that are weak, uh, would strengthen those that are burdened, that you might raise our gaze to Jesus Christ as always, that we might find life in him, and we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure a number of you know that the slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer, John Newton, his most beloved A famous and popular hymn is Amazing Grace, no doubt sung in a large number of congregations throughout the world, even uh, this morning. But he, of course, wrote many other hymns. And the one that I have always enjoyed the most is one that goes under the name of now, And I Asked the Lord, or something like that. It was originally written, I believe, in 1779. And Newton was trying to encapsulate in words the experience of Christians in the midst of suffering and how they often are surprised by God's sovereign hand of affliction in their life. And so two simple verses from this hymn would sing forth these words. 
I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And the hymn has this kind of back and forth reality of, I've essentially asked the Lord for these blessings. And his answer has only brought greater difficulties. I asked the Lord for solace and peace, and he seemed to only stir up the war in my life. So this verse is answered by, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my guards, and laid me low. That's why the original title from Newton of that hymn is Prayers Answered by Crosses. Do you know that God sometimes answers prayers with even harsher and harder crosses that he wants his people to bear? And it's true, though, as we walk through this book of Job, what we've seen not so much is Job's life as one of prayers answered by crosses as much as one of piety answered by crosses. Because it's important to remember how the book began. You remember that Satan was wandering about. He showed up in the heavenly council, and God says, Well, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth, upright, blameless, fearing God and turning away from evil. And it's important to remember that because where we get to the end of Job's words tonight in chapter 31, uh, we find Job resting again on what he believes is his sincere, genuine, heartfelt piety, his fear before God. In, in the first part of his summary defense, which we looked at last week in chapters 27 and, and 28, uh, you might remember that 28 was all about this search for wisdom. Job said that it's invaluable. Wisdom is invaluable for sufferers. It's almost undiscoverable, so great is it. And if you glance back to chapter 28, verse 28, you see he gives us the secret there of wisdom being the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And so all throughout this process, what has very much informed Job's back and forth with his comforter friends, his counselors, and what they would accuse him with, is this bedrock foundation of, no, I, I truly fear God, and there's nothing in my life that I have done to deserve this suffering, as you say, I have deserved this suffering. And so that's what's going to come along the way in Job's final argument before God and, and to his friends even this night. So we've got three chapters, 29 through 31, and each one has a very simple point. I hope you've noticed that along the way in Job's soliloquies, his, his sermons. Even the one we just read in chapter 29, it tends to have all of these illustrations, all this poetic language, which tend to adorn what is a, a very basic point. So in chapter 29, we'll see Job reminisce about those happy days. And then there's this clear contrast in chapter 30, as he thinks about these hard days, and then as he brings his final case to bear, as the Lord is locking him once again in the witness stand, Job in chapter 31 will point us to this hopeful case. So chapter 29, the, those happy days. I would imagine that some of you, perhaps even quite recently, have remarked to a friend or a family member about the good old days, when things used to be great, Easy, free of all responsibility. And if you notice, as I was just reading chapter 29, that's all Job is doing in this chapter. He's reminiscing. As he's lost everything, he's reminiscing about everything he used to have. Notice again verse 2 through 5 of chapter 29. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, 
When his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness, I was in my prime. When the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. And then all he does, really, from verse 7 through the end of the chapter, is speak eloquently and movingly about all of this fame that used to mark his life. This, this fortune he had before the people. You'll see even in verse 7 as it continues, when young men and old men would see Job, they held him in this reverence and respect. So great was Job among the people. You'll notice verse 9 that even princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed. It's why he can say in verse 25 at the very end of the chapter, he sat as chief and lived like a king among his troops. Job was, remember, the greatest man in all the ancient Near East at this time. But he's not talking specifically, actually, in this chapter, or primarily about his status. He's unfolding, once again, his conscience before the Lord is one of, of righteousness. He was a man known of great justice. If you'll see what he says about himself in verse 14 through 16. I put on righteousness and it clothed me and my justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And even goes on to say in the next verse, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. And if you've been with us through our studies in Job, you might remember that increasingly his, his council of friends started accusing him of no small number of sins that he supposedly had committed. And what he's doing here in a very eloquent way in chapter 29 is defending himself against many of these things that has been thrown his way by way of accusations, and he's wanting to refute them. So great was he in the land, you'll notice just verse 23, finally, they waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouths as for the spring rain. Those were happy days, Job says. But you don't want to get too caught up in his reminiscences about fame and fortune. Because it's where we actually started in verse 4 and 5 particularly. What does he miss the most? What does he foreground first and foremost in his lament of what he's lost? You see again verse 4. When the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. So students, you want to recognize what Job is telling us. And this is the man who was the greatest of all men in the ancient Near East. Uh, he's a man of no small amount of renown and wealth, riches and reputation. He's saying, you know what I miss most? Even beyond all of that, what I miss most is my relationship with God that seems to have disappeared. Such is his importance on knowing God, of being with God. Isn't the same thing true of the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians where he says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most zealous religious person in his time. He says, it's all meaningless. I count it all rubbish. It's all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So yes, those are happy days when I had money, when I had wealth, when I had fame, when I had renown. But what I miss the most, Job says, is God's smile upon my life. And I trust you might know of others perhaps that you've ministered to or perhaps even in your own time of suffering how one of the great trials and temptations that belong to any one of God's children who suffer is to feel just like Job in this moment. 
that God's providence upon you is a frowning providence. A providence that's not that of a a father to a child, a, a friend to one he loves, but one of an enemy or a rival. You see, Job is grasping to understand where has God gone in my suffering. And so often when we minister to sufferers, what we have to do is try to, with wisdom and discernment and kindness and compassion, yet clarity and truth, to help them understand that God hasn't left them. That all his purposes in their life, even when he answers their prayers in piety with more crosses, is for them to come out looking more like Jesus Christ. So, chapter 29, he's reminiscing about those happy days, and in chapter 30, you get this clear contrast. He's talking about these hard days. The contrast is clear enough because it's got this threefold volley, chapter 30, of this language of, but now. You see verse 1, but now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Skip down to verse 9. And now... I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Skip down to verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. And again, what's central in Job's mind in this moment, even though he's talking about these external realities, Uh, What's central in Job's soul in this moment is, is the internal relationship that he has with God. For look at verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. God seems to be against me. Sometime last year, I was teaching a class and. Uh, I heard my phone buzzing on the table nearby, and you know I, I silenced it quickly. And sure enough, within three or four seconds, it began to buzz again. And I turned it over and noticed that it was Emily calling me. And uh, I told the students, "Hey, I apologize, but you know she knows I'm she knows I'm working here, so I just silenced it again." And then, sure enough, within three or four seconds, it buzzed again, and it was Emily. And so I picked it up and walked out to the hallway and found out that our youngest son, Boston, had gone missing. And as some of you might know, you went through this terror of where has he been for the last so many minutes. And Boston uh, proved himself to be playing a hide-and-seek game that nobody else knew was actually on at that moment. But you perhaps have experienced something similar. You're desperate to get a hold of someone. Perhaps it's a spouse. Perhaps it's a loved one. Perhaps it's someone else. You're calling, you're calling time after time. And there's no answer whatsoever And you might know the anxiety, the fear, the worry that wells up in a heart. And that's Job. Notice verse 20. I cry to you for help. You do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. It's an experience of God's providence in his life that isn't leading him at this moment to consider God's goodness in the hardship, his kindness in the difficulty. But there's something here, though, about Job that I sure think is is worth our attention and even worth something of an endorsement from his model. If you've been following along with Job, what you find with Job is he's often talking not just about God, he's talking to God. And you could make your way later on this week, it wouldn't actually take you that long, you could make your way through all of the speeches of Job's friends, 
And I dare say you won't find a single time, if I can recall rightly, where they are talking to God. It's just about God. They supposedly are speaking for God, but there's never this prayer-filled longing to try to reach out and grab God in the midst of the hardship and the discernment. And of course, with Job, it's quite different. He is talking about God in various ways, but so often what he comes back to is talking to God because he knows apart from God, there's no good that's going to come to his life. And in your times of suffering and hardship, I wonder what you tend to do more often. Just talk about God. Ask questions about God's character and truth? Or do you also directly go to God to ask Him for that light that you need so desperately in your darkness? And so he continues on throughout the end of chapter 30 in much the same way, helping us understand that those happy days have given way to nothing but hard days. And you would think at the end of of chapter 31 that Job would be in this pit of despair, but remember in the moment, in the scene of this courtroom, he's locked into that witness stand. He's given his final counsel, his final argument, his final summary defense. And so chapter 31 brings us that final appeal. And once again, what Job does really for the entirety of this chapter is, is say, no, I am blameless in my conscience before God. There's absolutely nothing I have ever done that would deserve this amount of suffering. So you notice in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 35, he talks about his purity. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? No doubt there are so many in our time and day that I need to make such a covenant. Surely there should be something of a a revival of sorts in that old Sunday school hymn, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. So much of the scriptural reality about sin creeping in comes through those eyes. Well, in verse 4, really through the end of the chapter, all he does is give us this litany of examples of the way in which he has walked in utter integrity before God. We don't have the time to spell them all out, but you can read through them and scan them even in your own eyes as he talks about his humility, his hospitality, his, his charity, and his honesty along the way. And he cries out almost in a summary fashion. Notice verse 6, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. He's saying it's unimpeachable. He's not saying he's perfect, children. But what he's saying is there is nothing I've done to deserve this level of suffering and calamity and tragedy that's come into my life. And so he's got a hopeful case here at the end. He says, notice verse 30 and following. I have not let my mouth sin By asking for his life with a curse, if the men said of my tent, and they said, who is it that has not been filled with meat, the sojourner is not lodged, so on and so forth. If I have concealed, verse 33, my transgression that others do, by hiding iniquity in my heart, he goes on to say, essentially, I haven't done that. I've walked in faithfulness and repentance before God. This is my case, he says. I have not done what they say I have done. I have not done that which would ever deserve this kind of suffering. Uh, Several weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I I was looking as I was preaching to the back left of the room, certainly from your vantage point, the back left of the room, and I I saw a familiar 
uh, smiling face back there. It was a, a dear brother and friend of mine who uh, used to be a member at a previous church that I pastored and now lives up in Minnesota, and occasionally he's down here uh, for work purposes, and he just pops his head in, and you get to see him there in the service, and it's an unusually sweet friendship because uh, we were close, his wife and Emily were close, they had five kids at the same kind of time that, that we did, and it was in the spring of 2000. And 18, if I recall correctly, uh, he's a pilot, and I got this phone call from him saying, hey, I'm rushing home uh, because my wife is on life support. Well, she was only in her mid-30s at this point, and the next call that I got was, hey, she's died because she succumbed to this sudden immediate sepsis. And it was in that moment, you're trying as a pastor, aren't you, and even as a friend over the phone to be able to say, well, brother, I'm, I'm so, so sorry, and he almost has no words, understandably so, no, no words to speak about what has fallen upon him and what appears to be God's frowning providence in his life. But as time went on, and we spent some time together and, and talked more often, uh, the words, as they often do, they began to pour forth. And what we've seen with Job is after a week of silence and lament and Shrieking eventually, uh, the words just begin to pour forth from Job. And what we've seen now, as you'll notice, what we're told at the very end of chapter 31, the words of Job are ended. I would fix your attention on but two parts of Job's constant case in this book. First is his innocence. Has he not proclaimed from start to finish that he is utterly innocent of all the charges his counselor friends have levied against him. And has not that innocence brought forth the second key cog of his argument? His confidence. You want to see how startling his confidence is? Look at verse 35 and following in chapter 31. He says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and I would bind it upon me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps and like a prince, I would approach him. What's he saying? Tell Satan to accuse me. He's got nothing. Here's my signature, Lord. What are you going to accuse me of? It's a striking degree of confidence, isn't it? But such is the nature of his innocence. So often for sufferers in the midst of their trial and affliction, there is this constant desire for justification, isn't there? Uh, we've seen it with Job, this desire to be vindicated as not this wicked person who has deserved all of this difficulty and calamity. Uh, so what you then see is the words of Job are ended uh, something I trust of the type and shadow-like reality that belongs to Jesus Christ, who himself was the only truly innocent sufferer. And that innocence was his very confidence before the Father, because he bore in his very body, Jesus Christ, didn't he? Wounds, accusations that were false, and yet to the very bitter end, what was sustaining him along the way, but his confidence in looking to the vindication of the Father, a vindication that came three days later after he rose after he died, he rose from the dead, and that was God's divine decree of justification. So the glory of innocent sufferer named Jesus Christ is that people like you and me, that 
probably wouldn't ever say with such a degree of confidence like Job, try me. I dare you to find anything wrong in my life. No, we might be much more like, it's quite easy. I even am ashamed to admit how simple it would be to accuse me. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that his innocence becomes yours. His confidence becomes yours. So in the midst of even whatever season of suffering you find yourself in, you too can actually be as confident and genuinely innocent, unshaken by that which Satan means to sift you. Because Jesus Christ is your innocence and your confidence. And what happy days those always are. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us a full measure of your comfort, a full measure of your counsel as we want to walk forth in Christ's likeness, as we too want to stand always steadfast and immovable in your work, laying hold of the anchor that is ours in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.